And then as we're sort of navigating the world and the country, you know, we were having racial uprisings, still killing us. And, you know, in, in my mind and heart, I felt like we needed joy to be centered more than ever. Teachers were leaving the profession. And I started talking about joy and teachers reacted differently. It almost like saved them in their, uh, in this new space we were now in. In this guest interview with Dr. Goldie Muhammad, we talk joy and justice, equity and liberation. She challenges educators to think more deeply about what is actually required to create equitable learning spaces for all students. The missing but very essential elements and recognition of individual genius and joy. Let's jump into this intro so you can grab these gems. For educators on a mission to create welcoming and culturally inclusive learning spaces by prioritizing equity, the Culture-Centered Classroom Podcast is for you. I'm Jocelyn Hubbard, host of this podcast, but also your partner and coach on this journey. I created this podcast to support you each week by sharing information and inspiration for implementation. All right, let's jump into this episode so we can get closer to accomplishing this mission that supports every student every day. Welcome back to the Culture Center Classroom Podcast. I am really excited for today's interview. I'm excited for you to hear it, right, for your own uh, nourishment, but I am excited for myself to be able to have this amazing conversation. So my very special guest for today is Dr. Goldie Muhammad. She is the author of Cultivating Genius, an Equity Framework for Culturally and Historically Responsive Literacy, as well as Unearthing Joy, a guide to culturally and historically responsive teaching and learning. Dr. Goldie Muhammad is a professor of curriculum and instruction with a focus on literacy, language, and culture. She has served as a classroom teacher, literacy specialist, school district administrator, curriculum director, and school board president. She studies Black historical excellence and education with the goal of reframing curriculum and instruction today and has received numerous honors and awards for that work. Dr. Mohammed's scholarship has appeared in leading academic journals and books. Her Hill model has been adopted in thousands of schools and districts. Now, that was me reading the bio on the back of her book, Unearthing Joy. But I just want to say for myself that reading her books has been an absolute pleasure. And one of the things that I really have enjoyed about reading her books is that, that they have done something that I don't think any other professional development quote unquote book has done, but they made me smile because she is truly centering joy. And that's really why I'm excited to have this conversation with her today, why I'm excited to share her joy and her knowledge with you, because we need that in education. We need that voice of inspiration and joy as we are centering equity in all the work that we are doing. So without further ado, I know you don't want to hear my voice for another second without in being in conversation with her. So I'm going to bring Dr. Golden Muhammad onto the show. Hello. Hello. It's so good to be in company and in your presence, sis. Um, thank you for all that you're doing with this wonderful podcast and for having me. You are very welcome. I am honored that you are joining me as well. I cannot wait to dive into our conversation. But before we do, I think it's important for people to share their story in their own words. So would you just tell us who you are, what has inspired you, who has inspired you? You know, who is Goldie Muhammad? Yes, that's a beautiful and loaded question. Um <laughs> sometimes changes every day. <laughs> but, you know, I am foremost a Muslim. And I say that because I get all sorts of emails asking me, or, am I this or that? Are you a Marxist? Are you a anti-capitalist? And, you know, I look at these messages and I, I say to myself, I'm Muslim. You know, like, Islam is something very special in my life that guides my humanity, how I treat people, the kindness, the love, how I think about literacy and education, educating all children. So um, I, I'm, I'm also from Gary, Indiana. You know, I was raised with not all the, the resources, but all the resources I needed, you know, at the same time. 
And I, I've attended so many types of schools, schools uh, that taught me Black history, schools that did not, schools that taught me different parts of myself and my identities. And I, I always, like nothing came too natural to me except for teaching. <laughs> you know, I always worked really hard in, in graduate school when maybe folks were sleeping, I was still studying. You know, I've always had such a, a drive and endurance in my heart for this work. I, I consider myself a sister and a friend to so many people who read my work. I, I like them to read it as if they feel a little close to me. And I'm one that, that likes to just, to not just talk about it, but to do something about it, to be about it. And so a lot, uh, if not all of the things I have written about, I have tried, I have put into action. I still teach children as much as I can throughout the school year and the summers. I work with teachers, you know, throughout the school years and summer. So I try to not just be uh, one of those leaders in education that writes research, but I'm teaching children. I'm in with communities every day. I'm a part of the communities that I serve and write about. So that's a little bit about uh, what sort of guides my thinking and my work and who I am. I love that you said at the very beginning that your identity, right? Like who you are changes a little bit each day because <laughs> that is reality. And I think when people try to deny that part of themselves, then they feel this inner turmoil, right? Like they're not allowing themselves to grow in the ways that their body, that their mind, that their heart is, is requesting that they yeah. grow. So I absolutely love that you mentioned that at first. Yeah. And you know, other folks who may not, who may not be black and who may not experience what we go through might be surprised at how much we have to navigate on the day to day. Like as a black woman, I mean, something happened to me earlier today with racism, with my job. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's like the amount of energy it takes that we still have to show up and go to the next meeting and go, we don't even get a chance to cry and to heal, you know, because there's always more required from us. And, you know, when that happened to me today, <laughs> it's like, not again. And I just thought like, can we just have a day where we just have joy, where we don't have to continue to navigate whiteness just to be ourselves. And, and you know, we have to, as we are shifting ourselves every day, sometimes from moment to moment, things happen to us that makes us sad and upset and angry and all the things that sometimes people don't even know that we deal with because we just show up and we keep going, we keep moving. So absolutely. Yeah, that, that is so real. And you, you, you made me think about an experience that I had, one of the seeds that actually brought me to doing the work that I do now, right? I, I lead workshops and professional development and I coach teachers around equity, around developing culturally responsive pedagogy. But before I did that, I worked for a book publishing company and I was going in to do just like training on this program, but it was a couple of days after Mike Brown had been murdered in Ferguson, Missouri. Yeah. And I was working with the St. Louis public schools. And wow. so I went in and, and one of the teachers, she stopped me right before I could even, you know, get myself together and was like, I need you to talk to my students. And I'm like, okay, I'm supposed to be coaching you on this program. I don't even know your kids. I'm not a part of this school district at all. And there was this assumption, right? Because I'm a black woman and these were majority black and brown students that I would be better equipped to, to speak to them. And now maybe, maybe I was in, in that moment. And I did, I took a minute, I took some deep breaths and I went in there. But you know what, Goldie? I'm also a mother of Black boys. Yeah, what about your healing? <laughs> what, no. what about me, you yeah. know? Um, so I just, I, I say that to, you know, stand with you and I'm, I'm holding space for you because I, yeah, I get it, you know? Um, and I love 
how you mentioned as well in your telling of who you are, that you are Muslim. Mm -hmm. That is that is central. And I'm so glad that you shared that at the beginning as well. I believe that in the acknowledgments of Unearthing Joy, you say that you when a teacher asked you what you were what you were writing or reading while you were creating the book, you said I was reading the world and listening to the earth. And I believe that our faith is one of the key components that helps us to do that, right? It helps us to be aware of the things that we are looking at, learning from, absorbing in this world around us. And that's also one of the things that I love about living in the Chicago area. Obviously, you are you are here in the Chicago area. Mm -hmm. We are, my, my own children are able to have real interactions with people that have different faiths that look differently from them. And so it's not just a stereotype. It's not just, oh, this is how a Christian, a Muslim, a Buddhist or whatever acts. No, no, I have friends that believe in this way. I have friends that speak these other languages and I get to know who they are. Yeah, absolutely. And teachers got to navigate all of the identities too. Going back to the teacher who said, can you stop everything and come talk to my students? Well, you cannot be there every day and with every traumatic incident, right? So how, do, how, how can all teachers equip themselves to talk to Black children about trauma and tragedy and violence and other children about tragedy and violence? We have to not rely on or wait for anybody else to do that work. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think that that is one of the things that I love about your work so much is that you you can tell that you are still very much involved in education, not just writing the research, which is very important. Right. But it is very evident in the way that you are writing these books, that you are still very much involved because you are laying out very clear examples of how teachers can do this work. When a teacher tells me, I can't teach hard history or like, oh my gosh, this is too challenging. My, my first question is always, okay, well, where's the joy? Did you start the conversation with joy? Because I know that even as I am navigating racism every day, I do not wake up like, oh my gosh, this day is going to be filled with oppression. No, like I start my, do my day with joy. I greet yeah. my children with joy. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. I don't, I'm not living through this lens of oppression. So talk well, to me a little bit. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I just said, absolutely. I'm just affirming. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's so important. And so I, like I said, I really wanted to chat with you today to ask you, first of all, why joy? Because I I read a lot of different scholars and the, their work is so powerful and important and critical to the growth and the advancement of the opportunities and the way that that school is being done yeah. but you're centering joy so why yeah so i mean i like to be like gwendolyn brooks i like my pen to be responsive to the times we live in and so how can our pedagogy i'm asking like how can pedagogy be responsive to the social times, the good, the bad, the ugly, how we must still respond. And in much of the same way as an author, I must do the same thing like when I write books or with articles, blogs, tweets, whatever. I try to be responsive in much of the same way. So when I wrote um, Cultivating Genius, I wrote across four central platforms that I found the ancestors to pursue, right, from the 1800s onward. And these were, you know, the pursuits and education toward identity, skills, intellectualism, and criticality. And I write about joy um, in Cultivating Genius, but I don't uh, make it sort of this uh, pursuit, this fifth pursuit. I write about it. I talk about the need. In many ways, I assume that we're all teaching in joyful ways. Sometimes we can get in the in the in the body of our own selves and the people immediately around us who are teaching with joy, I'm teaching with joy is just like, yeah, everybody's doing this, right? Um, but that we know that, that that's not the case. And so in 2020, like when the book is published of Cultivating Genius and um, is taking off, you know, right, right away, a couple months later, we are in a shutdown, in a pandemic. 
folks are sick, folks are dying, folks are isolated in many ways from each other. Teachers, people were starting to sort of figure out what teachers go through because their parents parents had their children at home all day, every day. So some folks were appreciating teachers a little bit more, but teachers were in it. You know, now they went to Zoom and to other virtual platforms to teach. And for high school, that looked very different from like early childhood and kindergarten, right? Like trying to teach so many children on a virtual platform. And some teachers struggled and had to adjust like me, and some were ready for digital uh, platforms. Some teachers were doing packets in the classroom, packets online. But for many teachers I work with, they found this as an opportunity to innovate, create, and do something different. You know, we didn't have the pressures of testing. It was some good things too. But I found, and then as we're sort of navigating the world and the country, you know, we were having racial uprisings still killing us. And, you know, in in my mind and heart, I felt like we needed joy to be centered more than ever. Teachers were leaving the profession. And I started talking about joy and teachers reacted differently. It almost like saved them in their, uh, in this new space we were now in. So I went to the literature and the historical artifacts again. And I said, what did the ancestors have to say about joy? And right away, I did not wait for another book. I started to teach and write about joy to the community. I wanted to know how teachers reacted. And it would be like the pursuit they remembered that they needed the most. The more I go into joy, I found that it wasn't just having fun or celebrating. Joy was sustainability. Joy was peace. Having a peace of mind, a peace of heart like going into a a place and feeling safe and love. Joy was justice. You did not get to joy without justice. Joy was when my voices affirmed and acknowledged, joy was collaboration. So the ancestors and teachers were teaching me what joy is and what it could be, particularly in classes. And so I started pulling out these beautiful artifacts from the 19th century of how Black people talked about joy. And then I said, you know what? It needs to be a very serious and prominent pursuit and objective we set learning around. What happens if we have teacher evaluations set around joy, mission statements, right? I have mission statements from the late 1700s in Black schools, the the New York African Free School, where they put joy in their statements. We don't typically do that across our, our nation. What happens if we have joy assessments? So I started to say like, joy is the thing that we fight for every day waking up. Joy is the thing the ancestors fought for. They were fighting for equality and anti-racism, yes, but ultimately they were fighting for their joy. And joy should be the reason and the purpose of our schools. So for all those reasons, I came to joy again and again and again. And I said, well, that needs to be the second book of what happens when we unearth for this thing of joy. What does it look and feel like? Wow. I really resonate with that just on a a personal level, because I do think that when we get just caught up in the grind of all of the skills, maybe as as we think about education and we don't find our purpose and our joy in that, then it's just, we burn out. It's Mm -hmm. like, why, why am I here? Why am I doing this? And so I, I just, I love that you were being responsive and hearing the teachers respond when you said joy and them just perking up like, oh, wait a minute, this is something that I do want for myself, you know, and I've been I've been sharing your work with all of the teachers that I support and and really encouraging them to center joy next school year. Saying, look, I want you to put that as the theme in your classroom, joy and self-awareness. Those need to be the, the two things. If your students don't walk away with anything else, they better be able to tell their caregivers what was joyful about that day and what they learned about themselves, right? Identity development, all up yeah. and through there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Why not joy? (laughs) Like, what do people have? I think it's funny because sometimes they put cultivating genius on band 
list, like your banning genius. Uh, and I said, oh, it'd be funny to see that on a ban list, joy being banned. But in many ways, that's what we're doing. We're banning joy with all of these very rote and contrived lesson plans where children do not see themselves. People don't understand to see yourself is to manifest of who you can become in the world. It, that's joy. When you have teachers of color and diversity and diversity of thought, diversity of experiences, I see myself in this lesson plan as joy. So it, it is more than just this thing. It is this feeling, it's this experience for our children. Well, you know what? I think sometimes teachers need permission. So when you walk into the room and you say, show me joy, what sparks joy in you? It's because of the way that teaching and learning programs are for the most part set up. Like I feel like I went to a great school. The Department of Education was amazing, but nobody talked about joy. There was not a single thing. It was like, here is the discipline plan. Here is how you do classroom management. It wasn't about, well, okay, well, who are, like, why are you in this space? Yeah. So teachers haven't been given permission or been encouraged. They haven't been shown how to. Yeah. And, you know, they have my permission. <laughs> we have to give <laughs> permission, certainly. And our leaders as well needs to open up joyful spaces in the schools um, as well, because sometimes we it's hard when the policy says something else, when your teacher evaluation says something else. That's where it gets to be. I don't have permission to. But I have to tell you, sis, we should not have to really justify the need for joy and to put it a part of our curriculum and instruction. All we have to do is like turn on the news. It is hard. It is hard looking at the mass shootings, the mental health issues, the suicide rates, the mass shootings of schools. Like somebody said, I'm going to go inside a school or a church, like a church, places of peace and children, right? This is a whole new level of evil. And it is happening more and more, the mental health issues of our children. We should know that skills only curriculum is not going to save this world. Skills only learning and teaching and being is not going, you can be very skillful, but very sad. You can hurt yourself and others being very skillful. It's not enough. We need to center, and I'm not the first to say this. I mean, people talk about mental health and wellness and healing and trying to make it more prominent in schools. People have been saying this. I'm just saying it again, <laughs> because we need folks to keep giving, the, giving this message um, so it begins to stick, hopefully, in policy. I, I definitely agree with that. And I also feel that as we are creating these spaces that are filled with joy, that, I don't know, maybe this, this sounds weird, but I, I, I feel that <laughs> when we are asking ourselves what brings us joy in education and asking our students what brings them joy, then that does naturally, as you said, lend itself to this conversation of justice and equity because everybody doesn't experience joy in the same way. So if I'm giving students what they need and I, okay, fine, start with joy, start there, right? Like don't, don't necessarily even start with their Lexile level or whatever else, start with joy. How yeah. can we create an equitable classroom by centering joy? Yeah, absolutely. It's a beautiful question. A lot of people think I have to sacrifice teaching them how to read or do math if I focus on joy a bit more. That sounds so ridiculous. I cannot even begin. Like, first of all, we don't have off the chart numbers of literacy in this country. <laughs> so it's like, you want to keep doing what you're doing, even though we don't have any proof that how, how we have, you know, 17 to 30 percent, 30 something percent literacy proficiency. So you want to keep doing that because you think that adding joy is going to inhibit the basic education you're already doing. Of course not. It sounds foolish. And this is why we have to take lessons from our ancestors. If Black ancestors were still learning how to read, write, and think, and do math, and all the things they were doing, navigation, elocution, 
I mean, when you study their topics of their courses that they were taking K-12, they were more advanced than we are today. And if they were doing it all, given the circumstances of violence and racism and enslavement in the country, to say that we cannot do it today means that we are placing such great limitations on our lives. And, you know, sadly, that's what our, uh, our institutions, our educational system will become, the limitations we place upon it. Definitely more. So I want to I want to dig into equity just a little bit, just a little bit in Unearthing Joy on page 33 for anyone that's listening and reading along. (laughs) You define joy. I'm sorry, you define equity and you say that equity has been misdefined as simply providing rigor or access to all. But it is much more than that. Equity is teaching and learning that is centered on justice liberation, truth, and freedom, and is free of bias and favoritism. You cannot talk about true justice, liberation, truth, and freedom without talking about anti-racism. And, you know, there's much more that goes into that. But I would like to know a couple of things. First, how did you land on that definition of equity? Because if you look at Merriam-Webster or, you know, you type it into Yahoo, that's not the, the definition that shows up. So how did you land on that? And who, who wrote those definitions? Were they Black? I mean, that's a real question. I mean, you have to understand oppression Do people who have been oppressed. <laughs> you understand joy better from people who have experienced joy. You cannot understand Islamophobia fully if you don't take it from a Muslim. You see what I'm saying? So we are, we are pushing equity and people who are writing the definitions are not, uh, the people who are of the teams and the committees are not even people of color who have experienced this and who has experienced chattel slavery in the world the way Black Americans have. So I came to this definition because people were starting, people were seeing equity as access, access, access in education. So everything is equitable because nobody is going to stop a kid from having a textbook for the most part or a curriculum. There was a program in New York City that said AP for all. It was like an equity program. If you did not test to get into AP classes, you can still take it as a student. You cannot test it. You cannot have college credit for it, but you can experience the type of learning of AP. It's okay. But to say I can't get credit for something I've participated in, given my time and energy to as a student, I said, that is access. You can have access to something that is still very problematic and hurtful. Mm. Is it equity? No, equity is when I feel safe and loved. And this was designed for me. I noticed something about the programs, even the SAT, when they did the adversity score, I started studying these different programs like this. They never change the actual program or the tests or the initiative. They just provided ways in. We have a history of creating access and calling it equity. But when people get there, let's say the, law, the, the equity rule is we have to hire pe- more people of color to come work at this business. The business itself does not change its policies. They don't change their treatment of people of color. They don't have evaluations that supports our other gifts. You've given me access into torture, (laughs) into pain. Is that equity? What is this? We need to start calling stuff what it is. And so when I think of equity, I think of freedom. Freedom is a beautiful word that the ancestors did not use lightly that scholars like bell hooks coming after them did not use lightly. We just didn't throw the word freedom around. It's a very powerful word to be free is to be equity, equitable, to be free in your mind and your presence and everything that you do, that is equity. And you cannot talk about freedom without anti-racism. How can you? You play in games if you are, you're not serious about it. You know, this is not about us like me and you or individualism, this is thinking about the collective whole and humanity. If we have humans and people in humanity who have experienced a lack of freedom, then none of us are free. Mm-hmm. But you know, to even get to that type of mindset is hard for folks. So for all those reasons is how I sort of came to these ideas of equity. 
I wanted it to feel in the book when I write, write about it, I wanted us to think about more than just contrived definitions, co-opted definitions, like we have done with justice and diversity. If we don't start using bolder and more accurate language to describe these words, then what happens is people get comfortable and they're like, yeah, check off, we done equity, we're good to go. And we have done nothing. And we've done nothing. Yes. Um, your example about, okay, we need to hire more people of color. We need to hire more people of color. We need to, but then not creating these safe spaces. This is the conversation I'm sure you have with school leaders as do I, where, okay, well, we hired them, but then they don't want to stay. We put band-aids just to say, you know, we hired more people, we upped our numbers. It's band-aid equity. You, you didn't do anything to the foundation, to the structure. You left that there. You're sustaining whiteness in many ways. You're sustaining policies and mandates. That's not transformation. Transformation means you're not going back. <laughs> you're just changing for the moment. Right. And so, and so... I, I want to ask you then a question too, because in your definition of equity, you say that it is free of bias. So how do we even get to that? From where I'm at, Goldie, I don't, I don't know. I don't know either. And I mean, are we ever a, a purely objective and free of bias? Probably no, but we can check our bias. We can check ourselves before we say something or do something that is possible. You don't have to keep operating the way you have been operating. But, you know, it is hard. I mean, to your to your point and your question, how do we imagine like getting there, given that it feels like we're almost going opposite, you know, with all the policies around, like you cannot teach about genius and joy and blackness and black joy and black justice. Like it feels like it is hard to see it sometimes because as a country, we can ask ourselves, are we known for genius, justice, and joy <laughs> with our leaders, our Senate, our, our, our presidents, all, everyone, our school board, everyone who leads uh, communities? And people would probably answer that as sometimes, some folks, I don't know. I mean, I'm not answering it. I'm just, I'm putting it out there. Like, are we known for that? And you know, it is hard to see it sometimes because we have so much to undo. The ways in which we educate children are much like the ways of the 1600s in the country. And it feels like such a, a massive something to, to chip away at or to undo. And so I am with you. Will we ever get to that point? In some communities, we have already gotten there. I mean, there are people doing amazing work. There are some leaders who lead in that way. So we do see pockets of this growth. The issue is, is it feels just like pockets. It doesn't feel like a culture of a wider space. I think that what you said about checking our bias, right? It's like that's, that is, I believe, the path to getting to this space of being or creating a learning space that is as close to being free from bias as possible it is if we are not scared to continuously look at ourselves in the mirror. Because even as a Black teacher, I have bias mm -hmm. against around Black students, right? I was raised in a different household by different parents in a different part of the country of a different religious belief of whatever that has very much indoctrinated me. That has very much talked to me about different traditions, but I, mm -hmm. I think it's a scary. But it is it's scary when you say you don't have bias, you don't have racism, homophobia. That's where it's scary. Like you're not even acknowledging. To be born, you got some bias. You got some conditioning that may not be completely accurate or true. It's, it's not so much a problem to have bias. It's a problem to not acknowledge it and work toward dismantling or, you know, disrupting it. That's, that's where the problem comes. It's like people don't want to, they don't want to do the work of the self. So how do you feel like your pursuits, your framework is designed to help teachers? Because the reality is we have to, at some point, do it afraid because our children are, they're failing, they're struggling. And so how do you feel like your framework, you know, for, for everyone that's listening, because I believe your, that your pursuits and your framework are very beautiful, but I want to encourage them to know that 
here is something you can use to walk boldly into this space? Well, you know, we have to do the self-work, right? What Dr. Yolanda Seeley Ruiz calls the archaeological dig of the self. And we have to get toward critical love, critical humility. She writes about, we have to educate ourselves on the histories of how we got here. Because no framework, including mine, will help anyone who is not ready and prepared to, do, to be a certain type of educator who's not loving children, who's not humble, who is not, who does, who, who feels like they can just say anything they want to. You meet people like this. They say very cruel and harmful things to each other when they could have just remained silent. If it hurts somebody, do not say it. it. It seems like such a kindergarten lesson, but some people are in the practice of hurting and some educators, you know, people will show up and our teachers and leaders, I've heard them make fun of children's names all sorts of things. So what my model does is for that educator who's prepared for these ideas, who's done the work, who has consciousness, who has the things of the pursuits. You cannot teach identity if you do not have identity. Like if you don't know who you are and don't know about other people, other cultures, you cannot teach skills if you do not have skills. There are some people who struggle with writing to a point where they cannot put together sentences and they teach writing. You cannot teach criticality if you don't have criticality. You cannot teach intellect if you do not seek it on a regular basis. You cannot teach joy if you do not have joy. Can you imagine if people met me and they just met like a real, you know, mean, disrespectful person and here I am writing about joy? How would that feel and look? So, what happens is that teachers embody these five pursuits. They become these five pursuits. They teach them better. And teaching all five teaches students a more balanced, to have a more balanced life. You know, schools are very special because we spend a lot of time with children. And so it's a, it's a great space to teach them these foundational things that they not just need for tests or academics, but for life. It's not just about getting them prepared for college or careers, but for relationships themselves. How do you prepare somebody for themselves, to be with themselves, to love themselves? This model is a life model. And the goal is not just to teach it in the classroom, but at home. You know, what happens if we had a whole culture this way? We value joy as a nation and criticality as a nation instead of creating laws and policies against it. So that's the world I like to imagine. And the model gets at these bigger concepts of genius, justice, and joy. They help to nurture and cultivate a whole child, not just academically, but their personal development. And, you know, we've just seen such beautiful results and, you know, feedback from teachers and educators and parents, but from children too. You cannot just teach any basic lesson plan with this model. You cannot teach hate with this model. You cannot teach the history of the United States and not include the truth using this model if your criticality is on point, right? So it's also pushing a different kind of pedagogy. I love that you said that, right? Like my, my question was very intentional in that many times we in education, right? I'll just use this very general we, we feel like we can slap a framework on something. We feel like we can do a book study around something. But what you're saying is that we have to embody the thing first. If we don't know who we are, how can we help our students? How can we design lessons that truly help them to know who they are? So I just, I love that you said that because it is truly about us. And But Goldie, I'm going to tell you, sometimes we are afraid to discover who we are, right? We are afraid to look in the mirror, to do this reflection, this, this deeper work that requires us to search out both the beautiful and the broken pieces of our own self. Yeah. For everyone that's listening, I mean, I raise my hand and say, look, I struggle with it too. You know, every day is not beautiful. Everything that, that I say is not beautiful and, and I'm striving. And it is challenging sometimes to look at where I've misstepped or things that I might've said that have been harmful yeah. to myself and to my students. But like, whew. Yeah, 
We're human and so are our students. We set unrealistic expectations on our students sometimes that we cannot even meet our, ourselves. Sometimes it's hard for us to even get up and go in the morning and we expect students to always be on time or to be this and that. And it's like, we can't even do that. A teacher asked me this week, are you trying to say that there's no such thing as an unmotivated child? I said, there's no such thing as an unmotivated child. It was just mind blowing for me to say that to him. I said, is it fair if you did not pay attention during my class for me to say you're an unmotivated adult? It's such an all-encompassing label to your life. I said, maybe you were going through something and in that moment you looked like you were disengaged and I, I called you unmotivated because I saw it three times this week. I said, motivation doesn't work that way. <laughs> it's much like confidence. You're not just unmotivated or motivated. You have experiences of motivation. You have experiences of confidence with certain things and not with others. You know, that's how it works. It's not just this label to your life. So we need to stop. We need to be human and act humanely. When people say humanizing pedagogies, that's what they're partly talking about. Like be human in this, in the way you talk to children and treat them. Be human in the way you write policy and legislation. Be human in how you are selecting books for our children to read, you know, because we, we are losing a lot. We're not really calling it out, but we're losing a lot with our children. You know, this generation is different coming up. They need something different. They really do. And I, I like how you mentioned, what would it be like if someone met you and you're writing about joy and you're talking about joy, but you're not like authentically a joyful person, right? So the same thing for educators, as we're saying to our students, I want you to be motivated. I want you to be a learner. I want you to do all, be all these things, but then we are not ourselves seeking yeah. to learn and ask the questions and the things. So I have my own thoughts about the ways that you show up joyfully because I've, I've seen you speak a number of times. I had the pleasure of meeting you and it was joyful. But I could see a difference in cultivating genius and unearthing joy. And I'm sure that was intentional. So can you talk a little bit about how you are showing us how to be joyful through your writing of this book, Unearthing Joy? Well, I definitely wrote it, I wrote the book through two like drastically different time periods of my own life. And I, I am definitely like from cultivating genius and unearthing joy, I feel more free. I feel more at peace. <laughs> I feel more like freedom in terms of like to say what I want to say, feel to keep the right people around me, all of those things. And I wanted it to feel like something a little different when I wrote the book. I wanted it to feel like an embodiment of joy as I'm writing about joy, as you're learning how to enact joy in the classroom. I wanted teachers to feel joy when they're reading. And again, joy is not just about happiness. Because when you do hear me present, I'm not just like, ah, I'm just so happy and smiles. You know, that's not me. That's not my joy. Joy can be silence, a peaceful silence too. And so I wanted them to feel this embodiment of joy. That's why like each chapter has a, a playlist, a QR code of music. Uh, each chapter, some like original, some pieces from local artists even. Each chapter has art. Each chapter has poetry. Each chapter has coloring book pages. Each chapter unearthed thoughts, right? Gets you thinking right away. And I wanted it to still be like cultivating genius. I wanted to feel like a continuation of it, another chapter being told, if you will. I wanted it to feel like um, something teachers can read with not a whole lot of time, but be deep and profound in thought. I wanted artists to be our teachers of how to be better teachers because artists help us help learn how to be better. I mean, my husband's an artist. And as soon as he came into my life, I, I saw my scholarship differently, my research. You know, artists teach us in ways that a research report can't. <laughs> so how do we learn from poetry, from music on how to be a better teacher? That's what the book is sort of like undergirding in the message. So it, it felt very joyful. I also am like really big on Stevie Wonder and using his music to, theor to theorize how life should be. <laughs> and I taught like 
theory courses on Stevie Wonder's music um, as in college, as a college professor. So I have those kind of sprinkled in. I have my love for him and my appreciation for him sprinkled in. And then, of course, um, Pharrell Williams wrote the foreword, who is a very creative, innovative artist. He does a lot within the community, but also as a school that with a school that he founded and created and wanted to hear from an artist instead of like um, a researcher this time to open up the book. <laughs> I just want to say that, yes, I, as I've seen, I've, I've seen you speak a couple of times, one in particular at the NCSS conference in Philadelphia last year, so in 2022, and there was a, a teacher that got up to the mic and asked you a question about how to inspire one of his students who wants to go into education. And he kind of said it in a way that he wasn't necessarily expecting an answer directly from you or kind of like something more vague. Oh, I, I don't know if you remember this. Okay, I, but, remember, I keep in touch with his student all the time. We email. Which, so I was gonna reference that as a point of joy, right? Because you stopped right there and you said, oh no, no. I want to speak to this student. What's the student's name? Okay, yes, take out your video and record, right? And you and you just gave this message to this to this man for his student who completely didn't expect that. And well, you know, we need to be there for each other always. We never know what somebody is struggling through. You know, I've gone through moments where I didn't feel like I was good enough, I was worthy. I just felt like I wanted to cry all night. And, or like when something good happens, I'm like, I don't know if I deserve all the good. So you don't, you never know how your very few words, even to a stranger can help heal, can help them feel like safe and comforted. So I'm always going to do that because I wanted it and I need it myself. I just, I love that you are leading by example that way because you're right. And the more that teachers do their own identity development, the more they're going to become connected to the stories and comfortable with the stories that they'll be able to share with students and colleagues that are going to create a space for healing and joy. Um, we have so much that's been put inside of us, I think, that we can use to connect with others. Whew. And I am just, I'm, I am excited for everyone that is listening to this because as you said, joy shows up in different ways. So I am offering this as a little piece of joy for teachers this school year. And I, I want to know from you, like, what what's next? Like, what else do you have in your bag of joy? <laughs> uh, rest is <laughs> <laughs> always next for me, even if I have to force myself for it to be next. You know, sometimes you get so excited about work and... And, and putting beautiful things out in the world, you can forget to rest, but, you know, I have to remind myself that what's always next must meet, must be work every single day. I mean, must be rest every single day. I have to train myself. My therapist told me last week, you know, good stress is still stress, Goldie. Because I'm like, yeah, it's a lot going on, but it's all good. And he's like, well, it's still stress. So the next thing is rest. After that, you know, we're hoping to do like a book collection, Scholastic and myself, hopefully, um, with like a curriculum case, starting like maybe K-5 or K-6 and moving up of like books of anchor texts and curriculum that supports it that teachers can pick up and teach. Also, we've been thinking about like an Unearthing Joy workbook. If you can imagine uh, something that was reflective and healing um, for a child to pick up, to draw, to to be well, to think about their wellness, to reflect, to, to have like, you know, 180 days of genius and joy. Just a few minutes a day where they feel like they can dream in this workbook. And so not like, you know, the traditional academics, but but still have a little bit of genius on the page of teaching them about those sort of hidden figures that no one taught us. So, well, that is perfect for the timing of when this episode is, is airing that you will be having this workbook. I know that at least all the teachers that I support are for it. They, they haven't even heard about it yet, but they will be for <laughs> this workbook for sure for the, for the students. And you know what, Goldie, I think, I think people are drawn to the book because of the artwork on the front of it, because of the title, like it draws you in, it makes you want 
to open it up and see what is inside. It makes you want to say, ooh, okay, how can I unearth some joy? Like, like we are desperately seeking it like the rain, like we need it yeah, to nourish us. Absolutely. Thank yeah. you for that, sis. And thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. You are absolutely welcome. I, like I said, it has been a true pleasure and a joy for me. Are there any last thoughts that you have? And then also maybe some ways that people can find your books and connect with you if they want to do, you know, some workshops or have you come to their city? Yeah, I mean, they can contact me in all sorts of ways. They can go to social media or my emails. You can find all that online. The book is available in all the major, you know, um, and even some local bookstores. If people are interested in like um, buying it from Black-owned bookstores, I can give you a list too. Just reach out. Yeah, all the major uh, platforms. It's not hard. I'm typically the only one with my name, so it's not hard to get in touch with me. <laughs> Very good. Well, I will make sure that in the show notes, I include all of your social media links as well as maybe a link to Scholastic's website where they can find the book and some additional resources. Again, just thank you so much for joining me today. It has truly been a joyful conversation and one that I've been looking forward to for a very long time. <laughs> thank you, sis. And we'll talk again soon. We'll maybe have a part two. Yes, I would love for that to happen. All right, everyone, I, I cannot wait to hear your feedback on this episode. Tell me what sparked joy for you as you were listening to me and Goldie talk today. And remember, until we meet again, to center joy, to focus on equity, to affirm culture, and to celebrate diversity every single day. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Don't forget to grab your free reflection sheet by going to customteachingsolutions.com forward slash define joy. Also, rate and review this show on Apple Podcast and share it with a friend so that you can elevate together.